Welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. This week, we're going to review the events that happened in front of Guelph City Council between August and December of last year. So let's get into it. We start with an unexpected August meeting. To recap, an urgent request came to Council a few days before what was supposed to be the last meeting before summer break in July. The Home for Good campaign, a combined effort of the United Way and the Guelph Community Foundation, was over 700000 short of its fundraising goal and they had until August the 15th to close the gap. Deputy CAO Colleen Clack-Bush explained that in weeks leading up to the meeting, staff had met with reps from the United Way, the Community Foundation, and Kindle Communities to get a more fulsome picture of the situation. Although the original recommendation in July asked to allocate the 500000 to Home for Good as use for matching funds, the new recommendation in August had the money go directly to Kindle itself, since the organization had already completed a request for proposals, or RFP, for previous funding to this project, and because the funds would give the project some added stability. All parties had read the report before it came to council, and they agreed with the recommendations. Plus, Home for Good was committed to raising the other 287000 to complete the campaign. Clackbush also added that the decision to give the funding directly to Kindle was not meant to indicate any lost confidence in the Home for Good campaign or the people running it. Council voted unanimously to approve the allocation, and summer vacation continued as scheduled. It was back to business as usual in September with the Committee of the Whole meeting, which was held in the now completely upgraded council chambers. When you're watching a meeting from home, you no longer have to stare at the backs of staff's head from the other side of the room for hours, which, if you've ever watched a council meeting from home, is a very good thing. As for the committee business, a new territorial acknowledgement was introduced and approved, but the big item of the meeting was the downtown parking master plan. Terry Gaiman, GM of Engineering and Transportation Services, said that the goal is to use parking as a tool for economic renewal and to help accelerate the creation of housing to meet the 18,000 new homes goal. The most notable part of the plan was the future introduction of a cash and loo program for parking, which was introduced at council last week, and a reduction in minimum parking requirements to 0.85 spaces per unit. Technically, that last part is a zoning bylaw change, so this committee meeting was also technically a statutory planning meeting in the name of efficiency. To have minimums or not to have minimums, that was the crux of the committee debate. Staff insisted that keeping the 0.85 spot per unit number would give them more flexibility when working with developers, and it would help ensure that downtown doesn't head for a parking apocalypse by approving so many units without parking requirements that no one with a car would have a place to put it in a couple of years. Mayor Cam Guthrie and Councillor Rodrigo Goller took turns bouncing ideas off staff for ways to get to zero parking minimums. Goller pointed out that many Conestoga students coming to Guelph will be international students and that they won't be bringing cars with them. Guthrie, meanwhile, tried different policy proposals like having a zero minimum for social housing only or having zero minimums until the cash-in-lieu program is approved. 
Many on committee expressed their belief that the plan striked the right balance between all the various parking pressures in the Corps, but Guthrie was not one of those people and voted against the staff recommendations after calling for a, quote, parking revolution, unquote. Then we had the first of two long meetings about housing. We begin with the September one in details from a collective results report about the gaps in the provision of social services in Guelph around homelessness, addictions, and mental health support. Jennifer Gibson from Homewood Health Center had concerns about the report because it didn't have a data validation process, and she was concerned about making decisions based on that information. For the most part, the biggest direction to come from the meeting was having council and staff do more advocacy work and find more opportunities for formal collaboration between city services. The consultant's report provided substantial data that will back up those requests for funding, so staff did hope for some future success. Also on hand were Wellington County's Social Services Administrator, Lisa Arturzo, Warden Andy Lennox as well, plus County CAO Scott Wilson. Arturzo laid out how the county tries to take a homes-first approach, and she announced a housing symposium that took place a couple of weeks ago, and that was going to bring all stakeholders into one place and lay out a strategy that will treat housing and health as a single issue. We still do not know what came out of that symposium. A report is expected in March. Back to the meeting, though, Arturzo added that the county has seen a big shift in the number of people that need housing and supports in 2023 and how the biggest pressure is keeping up with the demand. The big piece that's missing is rent geared to income housing. Arturzo said that between the city and the county, we're about 4,000 units short right now and that they're at the mercy of private developers and their kindness. There was some praise for housing and social services workers, many of whom are battling burnout and trauma, she described. After the county report, council went in camera for 70 minutes to discuss interview findings in the collective results report, plus a potential property acquisition to support the housing supply. However, nothing was announced once council came out of in camera. At September's planning meeting, council approved the rezoning of 25 Alice Street and the allowance for a golf simulator at a business park on Hanlon Creek Boulevard. Scintillating stuff. Somewhat more controversial was a signed variance request for 176 Morris Street, a.k.a. the Guelph Little Theater. Staff were fine recommending that an LED sign could be installed above the entrance of the south side of the building, but one delegate who lives across the street on Morris from the theater had his concerns. He said that because this area was mostly residential, an LED sign was inappropriate and would be a nuisance. The recommendation, though, was ultimately approved with a slim 5-4 margin. To end the month, where Ward 4 City Councilor Linda Busatil sat as chair as Mayor Guthrie stayed up late in Copenhagen and videoed into the meeting, most of council business was dispatched pretty quickly, and then things kind of hit a wall. The collapsed stone wall on the Ontario Reformatory property, that is. Councillor Kathy Downer, who is Council's ex officio designate to Heritage Guelph, brought to Council a motion near identical to one that was approved by Heritage Guelph earlier that month, a request that Infrastructure Ontario repair the stone wall that was damaged on the property in August. There were three delegates that spoke in favor of that motion, mostly out of a sense of fear that this was another case of demolition by neglect. Council was unanimous in its support for the motion. 
That brought council to the final passage of the downtown parking master plan. Staff remained committed to the recommendation they had brought forward a committee, but some people delegating were hoping that they could persuade a majority of council to get to zero, but that was easier said than done. General Manager of Planning and Building Services, Crystal Walke, warned that making a sudden move to reduce the parking minimum from 0.85 spaces per unit to something less might require more public engagement. It was too big of a change to simply commit to it after hearing from five people in one meeting following years of public engagement to craft the policy. Mayor Guthrie wasn't willing to give up yet, though. He wanted to get to zero because of the climate crisis and the housing crisis, to have a more pedestrian-friendly downtown, and to put the risk entirely on the developer. Getting rid of the city's dependence on cars was at the heart of what he was learning about in Copenhagen, he explained. But Guthrie's dream soon hit many, many roadblocks. Gaiman said that there were a lot of short-term challenges coming to downtown in the next few years, from the Conestoga campus to infrastructure upgrades to two-way all-day GO train service, and staff will need the next five years to measure those impacts. Councillor Dominique O'Rourke said that she had doubts that the risk was going all on the developer with zero minimums, especially if the city is getting nothing out of it like cash in lieu. Councillor Aaron Caton noted that zero parking is not an accessible policy, and Councillor Phil Alt made the point that zero parking does not mean zero cars. In the end, Guthrie's amendment failed 3-10, to 10, with only the mayor's support and that of the Ward 2 councillors behind it. After getting confirmation that a first-hour free pilot for off-street facilities and a review of day and monthly parking passes was underway, council approved the original four recommendations unchanged by a vote of 11-2, to 2, with only Guthrie and Gawler voting against it. Since the plan's passing, it has been appealed by numerous parties at the Ontario Land Tribunal, so it's technically not even in effect yet. Now, the first big subject at October's Committee of the Whole meeting was the Public Art Policy Update, which was pretty straightforward because the changes to the policy were mostly in the realm of language and administration. And then we got to the bell. The bell in question was in the tower that used to sit atop the old City Hall building. The bell and the clock were both removed in 1961 when the tower was demolished, and while the clock is still in mothballs and in pieces from what we understand, the bell has now been rehomed in the courtyard at City Hall, which is the open area between Service Guelph and the Mark McKinnon meeting room and the committee rooms at the back of the building on the first floor. Councillor Leanne Caron forwarded a motion to refer the potential relocation of the clock and the bell to staff in consultation with the Public Art and Guelph Museum Advisory Committees so that they could potentially be a part of the bicentennial celebrations. But Guthrie moved an amendment to strike mention of the bell, saying that its current home in the courtyard was a done deal and that it's in a, quote, public enough area, unquote. Councillor Alt, who seconded Caron's motion, said that the courtyard may in fact be the best location for the bell, but making that decision should have been a public process. Still, the Guthrie Amendment was approved by a vote of 10-3, to 3, and the amended motion was adopted unanimously. 
The meeting moved on to a discussion of the Culture Plan 2030, which has been in the works since 2019 and delayed through the pandemic as the cultural sector, specifically public performance venues, were hit hard by those lockdowns and restrictions. That left the refresh of the Parks and Recreation Master Plan, which seemed like a fait accompli, especially after years of development and feedback. There would be an additional wrinkle at the end of the month, though. Next, there was a special workshop meeting about the budget about a month before that process officially started. It was meant to tee up that future discussion because the budget process this time was complicated by strong mayor powers. Although Mayor Guthrie had opted to leave budgeting in the capable hands of the city's financial staff, there's now a tight 30-day process that begins immediately when the budget documents are made public. Much of the focus of the presentation was on asset management, which is strained because of inflation and the loss of certain development charges and other fees due to provincial changes, and that means the city of Guelph will be constrained in how much it can do and how fast it can do it in. Staff also said that without financial assistance, it will become difficult for the city to keep up with infrastructure improvements, which will make it difficult for the city to keep up with its pledge to build those 18,000 new units by 2031. In their questions, council sought out advice on how best to balance community need with affordability. Staff would repeatedly mention the need for provincial government to close the funding gap with a $227 million shortfall over the next 10 years, which is just an estimated guess to the expected loss. There was also some expression of concern about the ability for council to chase their pet projects as well as an apprehension that budget shortfalls could mean service cuts or staff layoffs, which was an idea that was quickly dismissed. Before the meeting was over, Guthrie made a commitment to not use the strong mayor powers on the budget, which he said he would reverse uh, last week at the State of the City. He would use strong mayor powers for this year's budget. He also implored his council colleagues back in the fall to work with him to find the right balance when it came to service and affordability. At the second special meeting dedicated to the housing crisis on October the 17th, City of Guelph staff presented 17 recommendations for council consideration to take action on housing, plus the accompanying crises of homelessness, mental health, and addictions. The recommendations were meant to encapsulate objectives that staff and council believed that they could achieve by the end of this term while acknowledging the limitations of municipal governance and power. In terms of the council deliberations, there was a lot of interest in recommendation number two, which focused on reviewing the governance model with Wellington County. This item is already moving forward with the Social Services Committee moving to a new version where other members of Guelph Council beyond the mayor will be able to sit upon it. There will be four members of Guelph Council who will be sitting on the Social Services Committee and have voting powers from this point forward. Fourplexes were also a big topic of conversation with many councillors looking for answers to questions that staff intended to answer in a report that they will be bringing back to council sometime in the next couple of months. All of the recommendations, including one concerning additional daytime shelter space downtown and ongoing funding for the Royal City Mission, were unanimously approved. Afterward, Councillor Goller brought forward a motion to have $1.5 million put in the affordable housing reserve as part of the budget process. 
but the motion was deferred to the actual budget deliberations in November. Guthrie then tabled a motion through Gawler and his wardmate, Councillor Carly Classen, asking Wellington County to look at the possibility of starting a temporary structured encampment site, assumingly like the one in Kitchener called a Benter Tent City. Many councillors had no problem with the motion or its intent, but wondered about the logistics. How would community engagement work? How would they arrange services like water and washrooms? How would they find the wraparound supports? CAO Scott Stewart added that the word structure doesn't necessarily mean tent, and that means building permits. Eventually, council voted to refer the question to the county's housing symposium, but since Mayor Guthrie announced last week that he would be using strong mayor powers to have staff develop a policy along these regards, it seems likely that the question did not go down well at the county's housing symposium, not that we know, because... There has yet to be a report published about the results of the symposium. The final motion, also through Gawler and Klassen from Guthrie, was about asking the county to form and lead an integrated team that includes public health and the Guelph police to do wellness checks on people in homeless encampments. Guthrie said that the number of these encampments had doubled in the last year and there should be some kind of outreach to make sure that the people living there are okay. The county already worked through Stepping Stone to do this work, and the motion seeks to formalize and expand it, and it was approved. After a break, council started the planning meeting for October, and the first big item was the public meeting for a townhouse development on 331 Clare Road East. There was an added level of difficulty with this one because of the old James Hanlon farmhouse, a recently approved heritage asset. A portion of the farmhouse will be preserved and integrated into the development as a common amenity area, but to do that, the farmhouse will have to be moved on the property, where it will be set up in the middle of the development surrounded by 136 three-story townhouse units. Uh, an addendum. Since then, uh, there was a, a, a motion filed to oppose the heritage designation seemingly on procedural matters that is or did come up at this week's planning meeting as you're listening to this. The other new file was for the residential portion of the Baker District redevelopment to proposed 15-story towers with 353 residential units between them plus 529 square meters of commercial space on the ground level between the two towers combined. Of particular note is the pledge to put aside 12% of the units to be affordable housing. Mayor Kim Guthrie suggested that the project could look at going higher if it means adding more affordable units, and the planner seemed open to that possibility. Council made a decision about 716 Gordon Street, the so-called student residence planned for the old Royal Brock Hotel site. The application was pretty much unchanged from when Council saw it the first time, and while many councillors expressed sympathy for the neighbourhood and their concerns, there was no planning justification to reject the application. Council voted in favour of the project, and they also voted in favour of Councillor Downer's motion to allow the community group to provide feedback during the site plan, although that is non-binding. After a quick break, Council heard about changes to the development charges bylaw, which has been approved by Council last month. January, I mean. 
Then they heard the last item of the meeting, which was the heritage designation of 2187 Gordon Street, the kid barn in the Blair farmhouse. The developer there has expressed objection to the idea of approving these heritage assets, which meet six out of the nine criteria for designation. Under Ontario regulations, a property only needs to meet two to qualify, but they were not on hand for the meeting like they were for the Heritage Guelph meeting in October. Council didn't need much in the way of convincing from the two delegates who were in favor, and they unanimously approved the designation to bring to an end a long day in the chambers. The developer has appealed, naturally, and that appeal was also heard this week. So you probably know at this point how that turned out. Revisiting the Parks and Recreation Master Plan at the end of October, the aforementioned wrinkle had to do with accommodation for those with accessibility needs. Accessibility Advisory Committee Chair Lorelai Root appeared to speak in advance of some motions from Councillor Caton, which included a requirement for two wheelchair-accessible features for every every playground, service targets for playgrounds to have rubberized surfaces, and the use of economic need as a measurement for the appropriate location of those surfaces. As Root explained, the motions would help close the distance between real accessibility and the more textbook definition of accessibility in the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, AODA. In other words, wood chips in playgrounds are a good example of the difference because AODA says that wood chips are an accessible feature, but people with wheelchairs and other mobility devices think, obviously, to the contrary. Council ended up referring Caton's five motions to staff and the AAC for further examination, feeling that they didn't have the expertise on hand to make a fully informed decision. Caton said they would support the referral as it was established that a report would come back in advance of the 2025 budget confirmation, and the motions were unanimously referred, and the Parks and Rec Master Plan was unanimously approved. In new business, there was a motion from Councillor Klassen asking the mayor to pen a letter calling on the provincial and federal governments to work collaboratively towards the implementation of a national guaranteed livable income. Clausen said that between the crises in housing, affordability, and health care, the idea of a guaranteed livable income makes a lot of sense as a tool to combat poverty and inequality, but there were members of council that needed some added convincing. Councillors Michelle Richardson and Dan Gibson put forward an amendment to use the word explore instead of implement a guaranteed livable income, but it failed, and the original motion passed as it is by a vote of 10 to 3. There was also a follow-up motion from the Culture Plan 2030 as Councillor Busatil tabled a motion asking for a follow-up report about city-owned cultural, archival, and heritage artifacts and how best they can be incorporated in, into public displays or used for placemaking or adaptive reuse. The impetus of this motion for Busatil was the fate of materials from the Mitchell Farmhouse, which DCAO Clack Bush confirmed were in storage. She and DCAO Jane Holmes had already gotten a jump on the motion by initiating a review of all artifacts in storage and compiling that in a master list of what's stored and where it is stored. Busatil's motion was unanimously approved with the rest of the report. 
Guthrie wrapped up the meeting by congratulating council on exactly one year since the election, and he thanked council and staff on a consequential 365 days of council business. The debate at November's Committee of the Whole meeting mostly came down to one item, Redesigning Advisory Committees of Council, a Governance Framework, that is the title. Essentially, it involves the reorganization and realignment of the committees that contribute to the work of council, such as the Committee of Adjustment, Heritage, Guelph, and the Public Art Advisory Committee. This was the first phase of the report. The second and final phase is scheduled to come back to council later this year, once the advisory committees themselves have been inputted. At a special meeting after committee, a decision was required for a massive development on Victoria Road South. The fourth and final revision of this plan had 486 units in terms of clustered townhouses stacked back-to-back and two 10-story buildings containing 303 apartment units between them. Staff recommended that council approve the development, which was contrary to what most of the delegates wanted. Five people took turns explaining why they didn't like the project, and the only only pro-vote among them were the developer, and the planner themselves. Both Alt and Downer noted that the area had been designated high density for a while, so more traffic had always been anticipated. This project was compared to the one at Paisley and Whitelaw, which was initially rejected by council nearly four years ago and resulted in a showdown at the Ontario Land Tribunal that flipped the council recommendation to oppose. Mayor Guthrie said that he didn't want history repeating itself and told area residents to look at this as an opportunity to welcome new neighbors. Council approved the project 10 to 2, with Councillor Caron being one of the no votes. Before the vote, she clarified that her decision did not imply she's anti-housing or anti-development. She was just expressing her desire to build the best possible project. Caron then proposed a similar motion to one approved by council a couple of weeks earlier regarding the old Royal Brock site, asking staff to invite area residents to provide feedback during the planning process, and that received unanimous approval. Let's detour from this chronological review to talk about the budget process. This budget presented the largest tax levy increase in one year that anyone's ever seen, and Council had to figure out how to get something affordable while balancing community need and maintaining service levels. CAO Stewart outlined the fundamentals, including the housing pledge and changes to fee collection. He emphasized that cities cannot run deficits, not that he was suggesting that they should, and how the province has placed, quote, fiscal handcuffs, unquote, on the city. Guelph is taking action to allow growth at an accelerated pace, investing in pre-housing infrastructure, all while trying to keep the costs in check. Senior staff took turns reviewing each of the four sections of the strategic plan and what things have to be delayed or deferred in order to bring the tax levy down to 10.32% for 2024. The presentation was also splitting the budget into three different areas with various degrees of council control. Of the 10.32% increased levy, the city only had complete control over half, 4.97%, while the rest is divided between the local board and shared services committee, which comes out to 1.98%, and the government of Ontario, which comes out to 3.37% for services and programs that they should technically be covering. 
On the capital side, Treasurer Tara Baker explained that the goal is still to work towards a sustainable level of funding so that the city can stay on top of infrastructure renewal, but that pace had been throttled back in the name of affordability and the loss of development charges due to the new exemptions. When it was Council's turn, they expressed concerns about provincial impacts and the external economic factors like increased interest rates. They also asked about specific projects like less extravagant streetscaping on the downtown infrastructure renewal project and keeping York Road a two-lane road instead of the originally proposed four-lane improvements. Councillor Goller put a motion on the floor asking for staff at the city and the local boards to look for an additional 2% that can be shaved off. Some councillors said that funding that 2% was technically their job, while others said that it was worth the effort so that they could have more information about the risks and rewards of choosing where to cut. With so many disparate thoughts on the matter, Guthrie asked Goller if he might put pull the motion, and table something that was suggested by Stewart, a special meeting of council on November the 22nd to workshop various changes to the budget in a more informal setting, and that motion was approved. Before that, though, council would hear public delegations. About 20 people signed up, representing a diverse number of concerns and initiatives, and they also expressed some apprehension about affordability. Some of these requests would go on to be adopted by council at the budget decision meeting, while others fell through the proverbial cracks. When the workshop happened one week later, it was still uncertain if any budget savings could be found, but this process separated the budget possibilities into separate buckets. The first bucket was around local boards and services, and the focus here was new staff from the city, the police department, and the library. Bucket number two was about new operating expenses, which also featured questions about staffing as well as the phasing in of transit electrification. There was also some question about whether or not council could defer active transportation projects and then using those savings to fund transit. Guthrie noted that although city staff had deferred $690 million in capital projects, it didn't seem to quite have much of an impact on the overall tax levy rate. GM of Finance Tara Baker said that this was understandable because much of the capital budget is funded through DCs, and even though so many items were deferred, there are still new capital projects proceeding over the next four years. The conundrum remained. There were only so many ways that the budget could be reduced without affecting the levels of service people expected from City Hall. Even a supposed extravagance like the collection of leaves didn't deliver a windfall in tax savings, just about $131,000 per year. So Budget Day started with a lot of expectation and an 80-minute long session in closed to talk about 10C and the farmer's market. At delegation night, 10C asked for nearly $1 million from the city to fund renovations to the farmer's market building, like HVAC upgrades, accessibility, and other structural improvements. But 10C wanted an arrangement where they would pay back $460,000 to the city. On this topic, Mayor Guthrie said that council received information and gave direction to staff, but the topic of 10C and the farmer's market did not come up again in the open meeting. So first, there was some administrative business thanks to a $1.05 million reduction in the request from Wellington County Social Services Department and a $236,706 reduction 
Due to assessment growth, the budget increase discussions started at only 9.9% for 2024. The first motion from the councillors themselves was a request to add $43,335 in 2024 and 2025 to fund the city's portion of the physician recruitment strategy through the local Ontario Health Team and Chamber of Commerce. Ian Digby from the Guelph-Wellington Ontario Health Team delegated for the funds on November 15th because Guelph and area needs about 60 new physicians in the next few years just to keep up with the growth. The motion was approved, but instead of the funds coming from the tax levy, it was amended to come from the tax operating contingency reserve instead. A motion to add $1 million to the allocation in the affordable housing reserve on top of the typical $500,000 failed 3 to 10, while $50,000 for the development of terms of reference to do at least two value-for-money reviews of services each year was approved, and that money's coming from the reserves. Council also approved $100,000 in funding from the Operating Contingency Reserve for the implementation of a strategy for health and safety support as Wellington County and the Wellington Dufferin Guelph Public Health begin leading wellness checks on encampments in the city. After that, Council started looking for some subtractions. Councillor Gibson proposed two motions to uh, phase in new hires over the next four years, one for city employees and one for the library, which was approved. Councillor O'Rourke then tabled a motion that would roll back spending on Guelph Transit's digital sign project. Spending on the first 50 signs, which is for major hubs and important stops, will proceed, but the next 100 would be cancelled by the motion, saving just over $3 million. That one was approved 8 to 5. There was some haggling over the next motion. Councillor Christine Billings wanted to entirely cut the increase to the council training budget, but eventually settled for cutting it by half. Billings also proposed covering the cost of this year's $750,000 hospital levy out of the contingency reserve, and that was approved 10-3 after council debated delaying it for a year. O'Rourke proposed a motion to reduce the transfer to the Affordable Housing Reserve to just $100,000, saying that staff had proposed eliminating the reserve altogether in the 2023 budget. And with Bill 23 and its incentives, the city budget is already doing a lot to support affordable housing. Some councillors tried to make the point that Guelph only apportions a small amount to that account already, and others noted that maybe it's not the best idea to put money away without having a plan on how to use it, the motion was ultimately the tightest of the day, succeeding 7-6. to six. Then there was a multi-part motion from O'Rourke looking to make more transit cuts, the deferral of about $12.5 million in capital and operating spending from the 10-year route review beyond the next four years. This turned out to be a cut too far for the majority of council, as, as Councillor Downer said that she was experiencing a sense of deja vu. Council makes plans for transit, and then the proverbial wheels come off the bus at budget time. The cuts would make the 10-year plan a 17-year plan, and if council is going to build twice as many homes in the next 10 years, that means the city also needs to build the transit service for those roads, and eventually 
O'Rourke relented and agreed that maybe she was taking things a bit too far and the motion was pulled. After that, there were still some supplemental motions around the budget that were approved, including a motion to form a community working group to begin organizing the bicentennial and another to begin discussions with the coalition of trail users about a community-led effort to finish the Guelph portion of the G2G trail. But council had gotten to a final number. For 2024, the tax levy increase ended up being 8.52%, and that will be followed by a 9.79% increase in 2025, 8.03% in 2026, and 7.22% in 2027. In terms of wrap-up comments, work said that Council had worked really hard to knock down the budget impact for 2024 and that they were going to have to work just as hard this coming year to file down the proposed levy impact for 2025, 2026, and 2027. Gibson said that he intends to follow up on the idea of tying the rate of growth in city operations to the rate of Guelph's actual growth in future budgets. Guthrie pledged that he would not use his veto power as prescribed in the province's strong mayor powers might be the last time you hear that in terms of planning this november there was swift approval of two heritage designations and then an application to build 12 new units on one bristol street property that has since been approved the planner for the site noted again that if the 2023 comprehensive zoning bylaw were in effect then this would have never come to council in the first place but having said that Council still had some concerns about potential flooding and that the design was too unrealistic for the shape of the property, which still needs room for parking, waste bins, and green space. Like I said, though, it did end up satisfying staff in the end. The second application was for a 10-unit apartment at 14 Stevenson Street North. Most of those units are going to be one or two bedrooms, which are the kind of units that the city can really use right now. But the emphasis of the debate was around something that the planner couldn't control, the Metrolinx track that run south of the site. Metrolinx demands a crash wall, and they are very prescriptive about what that entails. The wall must be 45 centimeters thick, and the only thing they can put on it is anti-graffiti paint. Individuality is not allowed, despite a couple of concerned delegates. Council seemed mostly bullish on this project, and both applications were received by council for further consideration. Before the November 28th meeting had even started, there was controversy in the air, but with Mayor Cam Guthrie's proposed motion to have staff explore a bylaw to remove downtown encampments itself removed from the agenda, we got a largely straightforward regular council meeting instead. Still, homelessness was on that agenda with the daytime drop-in services update report, Staff had recommended that any new funding or the development of any new daytime shelter programming be paused until the housing symposium at the end of last month so that there could be a complete evaluation of needs and options. Still, the current daytime shelter program at the Royal City Mission is busier than ever, and it was clear from the delegations that the need was too big to simply stop the funding. Kevin Coggill and Mark Anderson from Royal City Mission were both on hand to answer questions from council and petition for continued support, at least to get through the winter. Coggill admitted that the service was a stopgap until more solutions can be found, but they still have 203 daily visitors on average, 
with 1,800 unique individuals served in 2023 and 75,000 meals handed out between January and the end of November. He also explained that they've been doing 12 hours of service per day thanks to the generosity of donors because technically the funding from the city for the last year was only enough to guarantee four hours of service per day. In terms of those donations, Anderson said that their funding efforts are stagnant. They haven't lost any funds, but the funding's not going up either, which is tricky because the staff at the mission are getting burnt out and they don't have the ability to offer raises or increased benefits as incentive to stay on. Also, general costs are increasing too. Anderson added that the current levels of city funding can guarantee four to six hours of service per day, but a full year at 12 hours per day, that's more like $1 million in guaranteed funding that they need. The mission was not built for the amount of use that they're encountering, and in the aftermath of the pandemic, they're pretty much the only ones downtown consistently offering homelessness services. Council then went into closed session for the better part of an hour to talk about how best to proceed. It was a matter around contracts, negotiations, hence the move to go in camera. When council emerged, they had proposed a motion to fund the Royal City Mission six days a week to the tune of $21,332 per month from the tax rate operating contingency reserve, and this will cover January, February, and March, and that motion was passed unanimously. It was at this meeting that Councilor O'Rourke's 11-part motion on intimate partner violence was approved unanimously, adding Guelph to the chorus of Ontario municipalities advocating for action on the epidemic. And over a week to spare in advance of the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. For December, things were a little more low-key at Committee of the Whole. Matt Bedick from KPMG presented the plan for the external audit following that. There was a special meeting of council to cover the fallout of Bill 150, which rolled back all approved changes to the official plans of a dozen different municipalities made by former Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Steve Clark. Crystal Walkie and Manager of Policy Planning and Urban Design, Melissa Aldenade, explained staff's recommendations for what changes to keep and what changes to undo. The Government of Ontario gave municipalities or mayors, to be a bit more precise, the option. There were several delegates appearing, all tied to specific sites whose zonings were changed at the ministerial level and would revert back to the original official plan passed in 2022 without the mayor's and council's endorsement, of course. There was a planner from Bosefields, Inc., who are representing New Cold and the new facility that they want to build at 384 Crawley Road. He warned that if zoning went back to how it was in the official plan, then the project might get cancelled completely, and that would mean Guelph wouldn't benefit from the hundreds of new jobs and millions of dollars in new investment. There were also several people representing a proposed affordable housing project at 280 Clare Road West. The original zoning for this area was industrial, but now it's zoned high density, and the group wanted to keep it that way instead of having it referred back to, quote, provincially significant employment land, which is an actual designation. The first amendment proposed by council was to make 41 to 45 George Street medium density again. Staff had recommended high density, but council made the switch to medium before passing OPA 80 in 2022. And then the minister's office made it high density again. The change was rather swiftly reapproved, 7-6. 
Next, Guthrie proposed to leave the zoning on 280 Claire as it is, and that council should direct staff to meet with home opportunities and their consultants in order to get their application in shape by the end of February. Despite the zoning and the official plan, the developer still needs to file a zoning bylaw amendment, which means that it will still have to go through the normal planning processes to get staff's approval for the project before construction can proceed. Some councillors had concerns about the provincially significant employment land tag on the site and how that could be removed, but that seems to be the developer's responsibility to do that. Others were hesitant because approving the zoning as high density was no guarantee that affordable housing would be built there. There was also some concern more broadly about the loss of employment lands, and that was not the last time that concern would arise in this meeting. After a great deal of back and forth, Guthrie explained that this was an opportunity for the city to send a signal that they wanted to help with the housing crisis and get one hurdle out of the way, even if there are future reports to come. As for outcomes, Guthrie said that this team was made up of, quote, very honorable people, unquote, in our community who were coming to council with the best of intentions. Seven of the mayor's colleagues agreed and approved the motion to not change the zoning back and it passed 8-5. The second part of the motion to have staff meet with the developers was passed unanimously. Further controversy arose when the mayor tabled a motion to take no further action on the zoning for 384 Crawley. Guthrie put the situation simply. This was about Guelph showing the community that it's open for business and that $1 billion in investments is nothing for council to sneeze at. He called it a reputational vote. That's a quote. Ultimately, the motion was passed with a slim 7-6 to six vote, with many of the no votes taking exception to the characterization that this vote meant that council was either pro-business or anti-business. After that, there was a motion to leave the provincial decision to change the plan for the Guelph Innovation District's lands alone. Guthrie made the argument that the developer, in this case Fusion Homes, was another trusted community partner who needs some consistency to proceed with planning, but two wrinkles emerged, the loss of 26 hectares of employment lands and the possible exhaustion of water supplies. Wolke had previously made the point during the Clare Road debate that the city was running tight with potential employment lands already, so the loss of the GID lands was nothing to sneeze at, so to speak. Other councillors made the point that the employment lands portion of the development were in later phases of the development, and that phase one, which won't even start construction for another three years, will not be impacted by going back to the original version of the GID secondary plan. CAO Stewart interjected, saying that the message to Fusion should be that they should work with the city to make sure that there's no broader impact on water and employment lands, because Guelph's still got to develop Claremont Biento Lime at some point in the next 20 years, too. Councillor Richardson brought up the concerning possibility of liability if Guelph didn't have the water supply to provide for the official plan, and Stewart said there would be a liability if the city weren't actively searching for options, which of course they are. Now, nearly six hours into the meeting day, Council's comments started to be more general, expressing resentment about being put into this position by provincial mismanagement in the first place, and then flip-flopping. Ultimately, decision to pause any further tinkering with the GID was passed 7-6, with Chair O'Rourke noting that there would be other opportunities for Council to address their concerns as Fusion starts 
filing their plans. The original staff recommendation, as amended, was approved by Council 9-4. to Council kicked off its second-last meeting of the year by spending over an hour in camera. They discussed the Ontario Land Tribunal appeal of the Clare Maltby Secondary Plan, and they gave staff direction. They received information about something called procedure bylaw training and clarity, and they heard the performance evaluation of the chief administrative officer, which was approved in open session. Also in open session, Mayor Guthrie gave medals to Marva Wisdom in recognition for being a recipient of the Order of Ontario, and he gave medals to the Beaverworks team from Our Lady of Lords Catholic School for being the 2023 First Robotics World Championship winners. The only other thing on the agenda was a report about implementing service simplified Guelph's customer service strategy, the goal of which is to make it easier for people accessing city services, but the work's slow going because they are reviewing one whole department at a time. After a brief pause, the December planning meeting began with the housing affordability strategy update. Council was curious about how the report would be used to start developing some housing solutions. Walkie explained that the report would be a starting place for follow-up work that will happen throughout 2024, and that will look at how to address the gaps identified in the report, like the crushing need for one-person occupancy units. After that, Council approved 136 new units for 331 Clare Road East and 353 new units for the first phase of the residential development across from the new main library on Baker Street. And then Council heard about 27 and 35 Janefield Avenue, where two properties will be separated into seven with the house on 27 Janefield retained and then joined by 10 new units. Council approved the project unanimously, which caused Guthrie to note that Council had approved nearly 500 units in the space of about 30 minutes. With business done, the Mayor wished everyone a happy holidays, and we will see what's now on the docket for the rest of 2024. We've had three meetings down so far here in February. There is at least three more, at least in open session. So stay tuned to Guelph Politico for all those latest developments. For now, that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Source's Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, or you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, you can check out guelphpolitico.ca where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you this time next week. And until then, we'll see you next time.